Hello, you are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. My guest today is Dr. Michael Hahn, who is University Distinguished Professor Emeritus of Church Music, an adjunct professor and director of Doctor of Pastoral Music Program in the Perkins School of Theology at Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas. Michael was my teacher of children's music and my voice teacher at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, while I was there getting my master's in church music in the late 1970s. Michael has had a long interest in world Christian music, and since part of the purpose of this show is to expose you to Christian music not played on Christian radio, I will be having Michael as an occasional guest. We will listen to the abundance of world Christian music and let Michael guide us in that process. Today is a sequel of my first episode. In that episode, I began with an observation Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. made on more than one occasion. On April 17, 1960, in an interview with Meet the Press, Dr. King said, I think it is one of the tragedies of our nation, one of the shameful tragedies, that 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is one of the most segregated hours, if not the most segregated hour, in Christian America. I definitely think the Christian church should be integrated and that any church that stands against integration and that has a segregated body is standing against the spirit and the teaching of Jesus Christ and fails to be a true witness. But this is something that the church will have to do itself. I don't think church integration will come through Negro processes. I might say that my church is not a segregating church. It is segregated, but it is not segregating. It would welcome white members. We have made progress toward Dr. King's vision of an integrated church, but the process has been slow and remains a challenge, especially today in a time where we need a movement that reminds us that black lives matter and where hate groups feel emboldened by our current presidential administration. For more than 20 years, Michael has been directly involved with developing culturally diverse worship. While at Perkins, he gathered a team for a research project in cross-cultural worship that led to a book, One Bread, One Body, Exploring Cultural Diversity in Worship. It was published by the Alban Institute in 2003. Michael is here today to share his experiences with and his insights and wisdom about developing cultural diversity in Christian worship. So welcome, Michael. Glad to be with you. Why don't we begin by letting you tell your own faith journey, especially as that led you to Christian music ministry and your interest in cross-cultural worship? Well, I was uh, raised in Iowa, perhaps uh, one of the most... uh, Uh, ethnically monocultural states in the country, at least back in the 50s and uh, 60s when I was growing up there. So uh, I had no idea that I would be uh, pursuing uh, this kind of thing. I wasn't even aware of the need for it or or any of that kind of thing. So went through college. uh, In seminary, at Southern Seminary in Louisville, I was exposed uh, to a course on uh, Japanese music. And that just planted a little bit of a seed that I really enjoyed uh, seeing how different cultures responded musically to different kinds of situations and realized that 
uh, we were one of uh, the perspectives, but not the perspective, uh, the only perspective in terms of how Christians responded to uh, God's love and uh, work in the world. After uh, a few more years, I had an opportunity uh, in 1989, 30 years ago, to go to uh, Nigeria to fill in for a missionary on furlough whose focus was on music. And that was uh, an extremely uh, uh, life-changing experience. I loved every minute of it. Uh, the challenge of learning how to uh, communicate to different people with different backgrounds, uh, being a lot more vulnerable, uh, which I find is the very important in terms of learning cross-culturally, uh, to other people's stories and how to communicate. Uh, upon that return, I uh, was teaching at Southeastern Baptist Seminary at that point. I uh, started to look for uh, other ways to uh, continue this interest, especially as it related to congregational song and worship outside the West. Uh, it happened to coincide with uh, uh, a lot of grant money that became available, a lot, relatively speaking, <laughs> uh, grant money that became available because of interest in, in global music and global worship and in the, the cross-cultural impact. And so I happened to be able to ride the, the crest of that wave uh, a bit. And so it ended up taking me to a variety of places. I made four trips to Cuba, for example, in the 1990s, uh, uh, first trip to uh, Asia, I guess I've been to Asia eight or 10 times and uh, uh, Latin America and at various places. I wouldn't call myself uh, a missionary, but simply uh, someone who goes to be a student. Sometimes I go and it looks like I'm the teacher, but I organize classes so that I really can learn from the students, uh, which is a, a very effective way to get involved in the culture and get, a, I think, a lot more close contact with what's going on. So that that led to uh, trying to bring this material back home. How can we respond in a, uh, a world where uh, obviously uh, we are, the, the Anglos are uh, becoming a, a minority group in a, the broader culture? For example, uh, I lived in North Carolina for 10 years, left in 92. Since that time, more than 300,000 Latinos have uh, become uh, residents in that state uh, in various capacities. That changes the whole dynamic of that. Uh, in uh, Nebraska, which was neighboring Iowa, I remember hearing on NPR some years ago that uh, what had been a polka station had sold out and when now was uh, playing Tejano music. So uh, that indicates that there was a market for that in Nebraska or they wouldn't be playing that kind of thing. The question becomes then how does the church respond? So uh, be trying to be sensitive to pedagogy and uh, ecclesiology, what does it mean to really gather? What does it mean to be the church in the world? And rethinking that a little bit, uh, how might we worship in ways that make us aware uh, of those around us in a broader context? So that's, that's been the, the nature of it, and it continues to be... Uh, uh, these days, as I uh, do my research in, in various areas, even though I'm technically retired, I still find ways to uh, interact uh, in the, the broader context with former students and in my research to bring to light uh, a little bit more of the story of congregational song besides that uh, 
of the uh, the classics, the Watson, Wesley, and the tradition, which is very important. But what else do we need to know about how we sing our faith and how we can be uh, fully the body of Christ in the world? At the beginning of your book, you tell the story about when preaching professor and Presbyterian minister Nora Tubbs Tisdale takes a layperson to a church school forum on worship and multiculturalism. And afterwards, the layperson says, I chose this church because there were people like me here, music that I liked, and a homogeneity that made me feel at home. Why now do I have to worry about how to make the church a welcoming place for all of these other types? Don't they have churches of their own? That story seems to illustrate one of the key challenges to cross-cultural worship. And you offer as an alternative to that view the experience of the first disciples of Pentecost. So talk to us about that. Well, the, uh, the model of Pentecost, I think, is a really beautiful model for ecclesiology. Um, obviously, uh, realizing that is hard work. I also say in that book that uh, it is very hard work. And uh, uh, as I recall, uh, one of the uh, people who wrote the foreword uh, uh, also uh, confirmed that. And so uh, what, you know, we, we think of church as a place where we go, as, as the person expresses, where, you know, we're loved, we're known, uh, we're comfortable. And certainly those are important aspects. Uh, I did an interesting study uh, in the last year of uh, the most common hymns sung uh, ecumenically in congregations. There was a list that came out in the 1970s uh, that was speaking to this. And the the list included uh, 227 hymns. So if you take out the Christmas and Easter hymns, the common ones sung there, and you go to the top 50, almost all of those are directed totally to the praise and love of God. Well, that's nothing. There's nothing wrong with that, except that the Twin Commandments, uh, voiced in all the Synoptic Gospels, say, "Love God and love your neighbor." It strikes me that uh, there's a problem when we sing very little about loving our neighbor, uh, and I'm not sure that we're living up to the uh, the uh, the fullness of those Twin Commandments. I don't think they were a multiple choice test when Christ was responding when asked about what were the most important commandments. So uh, it's tied into this idea, who is our neighbor then? Well, the, there are several passages that make it very clear uh, who our neighbor is. So uh, that's a difficult thing to reach out to. Um, I think the ecclesiology needs to expand to be not only uh, with people uh, that share our faith, but also with people who challenge us and uh, in our faith and help us grow in it. Uh, I worry that the church kind of becomes a museum rather than uh, a, a place of energy and vitality and, and outreach uh, to our neighbors. So uh, I think Pentecost is a good model of that. Obviously, it was a special time. The Spirit was moving very uh, strongly uh, in an unusual way, but I think the Spirit's always moving. And there are glimpses of Pentecost that we need to look for, and I don't think we can cultivate them necessarily, but we can be open to them. Uh, we can't force 
God's hand. We can't force the Spirit's hand, but we can be open uh, for when those glimpses might take place. And I find over the last 30 years that I I live from little glimpse to little glimpse of Pentecost uh, and say, ah, yes, this is, this is why we're together. This is what, what it's supposed to be. This is the realm of God that we're uh, looking for when we say, thy kingdom come in the Lord's Prayer. This is what we're looking for now. So uh, maybe uh, I also like that passage I talk about in the book. I think it's Ephesians 2 where I think it's in one translation, it talks about uh, breaking down the dividing wall of hostility between, in that case, it was the Christians, the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. Um, since we're in a, in a uh, political climate of walls and their significance, I think our job, according to that passage, is to see what we can do each day to see if we can make a, a little bit of a, a niche where light shines through that wall every day in some form. So those are, those are some of the things that guide my work and uh, give me energy to continue. You say that before you should develop strategies for enabling cross-cultural worship, it helps to understand the interplay between culture and worship. And for that, you use the Nairobi statement that offers four major perspectives on the relationship between culture and worship. These are worship as transcultural, contextual, countercultural, and cross-cultural. Talk about each of those. It's a, it's a helpful model. It's not perfect, but it's a difficult area, uh, arena of thought to get a handle on. And so I find that this statement uh, coming out of the Lutheran World Federation, uh, a very cross-cultural body and how to uh, relate within a given tradition, but I think it works uh, quite well across the Christian spectrum. Uh, how can we be more faithfully the church? There are certain things that, for the most part, Christians share across uh, across denominational or faith lines of faith tradition. Uh, we value the word, the word uh, in terms of scripture in some form or another. Uh, we value the word usually spoken. Uh, we value the word sung. We respond in various ways to, whether it would be ordinances or sacraments, we respond to those in various ways. It may be on the one spectrum, uh, an inward sacrament of the Quakers, but it may be on the other, uh, the other spectrum, uh, you know, various interpretations of, of how God's grace comes to us through the sacraments how we recall those actions that uh, Christ uh, were, were examples of Christ's ministry for us through baptism and through the Lord's Supper, or Eucharist, or communion. Um, those are some of the things that take place. Now, different denominations manifest those differently. So that's where the contextual comes in. The contextual can refer to a particular faith tradition, and how it manifests those transcultural elements. It can refer to also a specific cultural context in a faith tradition. So uh, when I've seen, uh, for example, uh, different kinds of, of worship in other cultures, there are certain elements that come place. I recall uh, being in, in Zimbabwe, uh, where in communion, uh, not so much for sanitary reasons, although that was involved, 
the, the pastor very ceremoniously uh, washed hands uh, in, in the water uh, as, a, as a symbol of, of preparing, in this case, himself uh, to preside over uh, communion. Uh, but it was it was also it could be seen as a sanitary element. But I I think it was much more a symbol of of pastoral preparation. Uh, I've seen a, a case in a, a wonderful case in a Catholic uh, parish where uh, the priest invited all of the children who technically were not yet confirmed and able to take communion, but he invited them around the table while he administered the the prayer of great thanksgiving and held their hands around the table. Uh, so that they could be close and participate. Uh, there's all sorts of ways that there's a, a contextual element. Then, um, uh, let's see, there's a cross-cultural, and what's the other one I'm leaving out? Countercultural. Um, this is one that I think needs to be in dialogue with, with all of these, because uh, it's easy to say, well, let's make it contextual so that everyone's comfortable. But there's just something about the... Uh, the scripture that asks us to be in a 180-degree turn uh, uh, against what we see in culture that says that, that there's a prophetic word that's part of this. Um, I'll link that back to what I said earlier about, about love God, love your neighbor. The hymns that speak to love your neighbor are often hymns that would cause us to say, ouch, I'm not doing that. Uh, and so I think there needs to be an ouch in worship. Uh, where uh, we're also challenged uh, in terms of how we are not living uh, up to what we're expected. This falls, of course, uh, flies in the face of, of prosperity gospel and certain kinds of things like this that are being preached um, that uh, uh, say that the accumulation of wealth and resources are to be desired because it's a sign of God's blessing. And so uh, we we preach one thing, but we live another. Uh, that doesn't fly. That doesn't work in this context. Then the cross-cultural element. It's actually hard for us to worship and not be cross-cultural. If we take the Bible seriously, it came to us in in different cultural context. Uh, the the Greek-speaking world of the New Testament was very different than the various languages of the Old Testament. Uh, whether it was in the Pentateuch or other places. Um, so uh, that's a cross-cultural element, just to begin with. Many of the hymns that we sing may have their origins back as, as distant as the 4th century uh, in Latin or Greek or German or some other language, uh, and they're translated, and the music may come to us from different times and places. However, uh, today we're called to be conscious of that, and, and to expand that beyond, uh, I think, beyond the, the, the normative Western experience. And that's where loving your neighbor comes into contact with cross-cultural work. Who are those that are least among us? If Matthew 25 isn't at the heart of our ecclesiology, I'm not sure we have a healthy ecclesiology in terms of how we're responding uh, to those things. So the, they're not four succinct points. There, there are four organic points that interact and balance with each other. Uh, contextual balances and gives meaning to transcultural. The, uh, so all those things, they work together in kind of a unit. They're not just four things to check off. Are we doing that? 
However, it is helpful to have a conversation about uh, with with a, a group of people in the church uh, that are care about worship and are responding to it. How do we do those things? Are we faithful? Can we find elements? I've done this with students over the years, and it's uh, become it was a very helpful tool for them to get a handle on what was missing. They often knew something was missing, but without any kind of guide, they they just thought, well, I just got to keep people happy. Keeping people happy is is not really ministry. Uh, it doesn't mean that we're supposed to sow dissent. But on the other hand, uh, I don't think Christ's ministry was revolved around keeping people happy. It was around making people whole, uh, making, uh, providing a ministry of, of love and reconciliation, which, which may not always mean happy. I think I'll stop there. <laughs> you talk about it being a very hard process that requires a lot of work, and that the cause of that is that birds of a feather tend to flock together. For many ethnic groups and minority groups, there is a strong sense of church being not only a place where they gather to worship, but a place where they reinforce their cultural identity. And in evangelistic efforts, in efforts to try to begin new churches, there is often a focus around people groups. It isn't always necessarily a single ethnic group that is a people group. It can be a multicultural group, but still the focus is around one aspect, like a cowboy church or a motorcycle church. That's an interesting point, uh, and it's, it's one that, that I don't necessarily have all the answers to, but I'll, I'll tell you how, how I think about it, because um, I guess I'll just lay it right out. Um, when, first of all, the United States, although it's not the uh, the Christian beacon that it once was, there are a lot of nuns, none of the above apply, uh, there still is an overarching concept of uh, some kind of Christian foundation. Um, and so, uh, and that Christian foundation comes to us primarily through uh, Caucasian England uh, Anglo experiences. So uh, I think there's a sense of hospitality when one's ethnic, broad ethnic perspective is in the majority of, of hospitality to others. Um, for sure, uh, if, uh, if a Latino congregation uh, that may consist of several different groups from different countries uh, gets together and all day, they, all week, they've been in an Anglo world, and here's a chance to, to be at home. That's a little bit different than those, than those of us that had, have also, as Anglos, been floating in that Anglo world and solidify our, our particular worldview. Um, so I think uh, those of us with the... Uh, the, the broad cultural influence over the over the media, over other things, over the power that's exerted, the financial influence, uh, we it's, it's it's on us to be more open. That doesn't mean we give up our heritage. That doesn't mean we we give up the things that uh, the way we pray that makes us more comfortable. But it means I think we open ourselves up to new insights that come from different cultural perspectives. Uh, that's what we're missing out. Rather than being giving up something, I think we're opening ourselves up. 
how does the uh, the Bible look uh, from a different perspective? I recall uh, being uh, with a group of uh, women, domestic workers from uh, Colombia, other areas around that in South Africa. This was in Geneva. They had been sent by their families to be domestic workers in Geneva to to uh, families of means and then send their money home. And they were, in, in a sense, in exile. Their only time of the week was Sunday morning uh, through about mid-afternoon. That was their only time. And they were at, at church at this, this uh, community that met there in, uh, in Geneva. And I was uh, had a friend whose husband was a pastor of this church, and she invited me to speak to the Saint school class. So... I decided to talk about the Lord's Prayer. We sang a couple of versions of the Lord's Prayer, several that they would have known in, uh, in Spanish in various regions of Latin America. And then I went through the petitions, and I, I asked them, which of these petitions is the most important of all the petitions in the Lord's Prayer? Almost in unison, every one of them said, give me this day our daily bread. I was kind of floored because I've never wanted for my daily bread, but this changed my perspective that that wasn't just uh, just a formality, uh, that it was uh, an existential need. Um, in another case in Argentina, I was talking to a group of people who were talking about Advent and Christmas. And in the discussion, and I seemed to close the discussion off with uh, the wise men or whatever, and uh, they said, uh, the story's not over. Now, the, these, these were people that had suffered a succession of several military junta that had uh, uh, controlled society in such a way that if you disagreed, you just simply disappeared. Desaparecidos, desaparecidas. Uh, lots of ways. They found mass graves. Certain people were taken out on airplanes and pushed over the ocean, out in the, uh, the plane into the ocean. People just disappeared. And so uh, they said, you left out the slaughter of the innocents. And I realized that that narrative hardly ever comes up in a mainline Protestant church as part of that uh, overall Christmas uh, narrative. We, send, we tend to we tend to leave that one out. So there's cultural things that come to light uh, and bring the biblical story more alive uh, when we look at it through the different experiences of, of people. We're missing that. Uh, and we're missing a, a, a joy of, of different ways of relating. Uh, I don't think it means that we turn the, every service into a, a global immersion experience. But I think we can make contact consciously with other groups uh, more normative in our experience uh, by how we uh, gradually use materials, uh, perhaps offering a prayer from a part of the world that is in particular struggle at a given time, as opposed to only praying for, let's pray with uh, a prayer. Uh, choosing a song, uh, you know, for example, that that comes to us right now from there are Christian songs from the Middle East uh, that that might give us some insight. What it, would it be like to pray for peace uh, with uh, shalom, salam, and uh, peace? Uh, all three words. There are just lots of ways to do that, uh, and we don't have to do that for the whole service, but 
but open ourselves up and make ourselves more flexible. These are these are spiritual cross-cultural muscles that need to need to have some exercise and develop a flexibility and an openness. I think that can happen uh, with with a careful pedagogy, not with a sense of guilt, but with a sense of look what we're missing. You describe how some historically established ethnic churches are experiencing the same thing that Anglo or white churches experienced during the integration of the 60s and when white flight took place. That is, that over time, another ethnic group has moved into the community and the church itself has become a commuter church where the members have moved elsewhere and drive back and the church is surrounded by folks from another culture. So how do we address those kinds of situations where those living in the community are not those who are in the congregation? I think that the, the basic issue is, is the motive. Um, a lot of us you know, say, well, we got to get them in our church. We want them to become tithers. We want to uh, make sure they're evangelized, whatever. As I look at Matthew 25 again, it just, it, it it really uh, that may be an end result, but I don't think that's the motivation for why we do it. Uh, so uh, ways of of reaching out in terms of what are the needs of those people and how do our gifts intersect with those needs? We have people who uh, are lawyers. Well, can we provide uh, a legal assistance for uh, uh, undocumented folks? Uh, we have people who are in healthcare. Can we provide some kind of clinic uh, that addresses those those needs? Uh, we have people uh, who are on the margins in terms of food and clothing. Can we provide those kind of things? Uh, and then I think showing that we care, uh, following that Matthew 25, you were naked and I clothed you, etc. The whole list that goes on. You were hungry and I fed you. Um, I think uh, naturally over time, if if uh, we see our space as a welcoming space that's porous into the community, not as something that we have, something that we sort of noblesse oblige, we grant you the privilege of coming among us, they can spot that right away. They may, folks may come because they, they do need the services we offer, but uh, this is, this is a, a space that God has given us. We're going to share it with you. Uh, how else? Do you need a place to worship? Might we might we worship once a quarter together and share uh, communion? Might we share fellowship meals together uh, and get to know you as people? Uh, this is a process that takes time, but uh, I found more and more there are people that are interested in that. I find also more and more that that uh, a lot of young people, I don't like to use the labels the millennials and then the next generation, whatever we're calling them, but I find that they know this is the kind of world that we live in. And if they're going to survive, they need to survive with relationships, not just with people that look like them or have a similar background. And so, uh, and I think they're looking for authenticity in relationship. They they spot us when we really have ulterior motives. They say this is you're not really wanting to minister. You're really wanting to do X, Y, and Z. Uh, they're really good at that. And so, 
uh, I think it's uh, it's really uh, it's hard work, but it's not rocket science. It takes persistence. It takes the commitment of leadership from the top and a buy-in from those uh, who are the key key people uh, in the church, the wisdom figures, those that, according to the polity of a congregation, are deacons or elders or on the session or whatever version you would have of it. Uh, it takes a buy-in from those people and a, and a real focused ministry that this is part of what we do and who we are and our essential identity. Uh, and we sing... We may sing in Spanish occasionally, not because we're comfortable with it, but because we're vulnerable. And uh, uh, we make ourselves vulnerable purposely, not because it's going to be perfect, but because we're trying. And, you know, that's what most groups just ask of us, that we try, not that we're perfect. And then there's a point at which uh, there's a connection made. It's not, it's not like the old, if we sing it, they'll come. That's that's not it either. We sing it because of what it teaches us and how it and it uh, nurtures our faith. So uh, uh, it's a, a process that takes a lot of time. It's a process. Sometimes it is two steps backward, uh, forward, and one step backward. Uh, it's a process that demands leadership. It's a process that I think, uh, as I stress in the book. I don't think we can uh, we can uh, emphasize the importance enough of just sharing meals together with no agenda other than to get to know you and you to know me. You discuss some practical challenges. For instance, being sensitive to cultural differences in relationship to things like time. I remember when I was teaching at Palm Beach Atlantic College, my friend Robert Cochran was the director of new work at the Palm Lake Baptist Association and he sought to organize some cross-cultural fellowship meals. He told of an experience where the meal was supposed to begin at 2 o'clock on a Saturday. The Anglo churches showed up at 2 o'clock. The Latino churches showed up at 3, and the Haitian churches showed up at 4. By that time, the Anglo churches were ready to go home. I was telling this story to a Nigerian friend of mine, and he said, well, if there had been Nigerians there and they had been invited, they would have showed up at 8 o'clock. So, 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 so speak to us about that a little bit. Sure. Uh, you know, that, that, uh, that of course, uh, is often heard about you know, worship service because uh, my kind of folks tend to value economy of time. We, we talk about spending time wisely, we talk about using our time effectively. Uh, sometimes we evaluate a good worship service as one that got out early. Um, and so, um, you know, we, that's just kind of the way we are, rather than relaxing into it. And I'm not saying that that's wrong. Uh, obviously, uh, taking more time doesn't necessarily make more effective worship. But uh, another factor ex talked about that in, in the book is also time is relationship. And uh, so I, th I think it probably makes a difference. For example, uh, who's hosting the meal uh, could, make, could make a difference in terms of, of how that's done. It's, it's our nature's kind of to want to always host it, you know, come to our place. Uh, so finding a way to uh, have different groups host it might make that more uh, easy to work with. 
you can see it sometimes in, in congregations where they pass the peace or they simply have a moment of greeting and fellowship. Um, you know, I, I've been to a, no, a lot of churches over the years when that'll take place, and basically no one in, in some places, in some places they won't even move out of the pews. You know, they'll simply, there's four people around them. They can, in front, behind, and on either side, they'll shake their hands, and that's it. Okay, I'm ready to move on. Uh, whereas I've been in other other fellowships where that can go on for 15 minutes in terms of, it seems like virtually every other person greeted every person <laughs> in the, in the, the congregation. And that, that was part of the, the experience. And there was singing and, and uh, whatever going on during that time. And it wasn't seen as wasted at all, but it was seen as community building. You can't force that kind of thing. And it doesn't mean that one's better than the other, but they are different ways of responding to time. Um, and so, uh, you know, it's quite common in, in a number of African-American churches for uh, there to be a, at least a 45-minute to an hour uh, worship experience before they ever preach. And the pastor still may stand up and say, I, I think we're not ready to hear the word yet. <laughs> uh, and... Uh, so a part of it, I think, would be opening ourselves up to a little bit more elasticity in uh, how we worship, uh, not to just add time for the sake of doing it, but uh, what what can happen in our service to to be more uh, uh, attentive to all the senses, not just to listening and seeing, but uh, to feeling, to uh, moving, the kinesthetic. Uh, all those kind of things. For many of our congregations, uh, uh, content is only what's said and read. Uh, whereas I think content in in many other cultures is what's experienced, it's what's felt, it's it's uh, in a touch uh, with someone else. It's uh, it comes through in in uh, nonverbal forms in terms of art and, and dance and other kinds of things. Uh, things that, you know, we might actually find attractive, especially when it comes to dealing uh, across generations. I think uh, it's, it's been shown that many of these kinds of uh, more sensory uh, involvements of worship are actually appealing across generations. We might not have to send our children out of worship. Um we might not have so many bored young people if uh, we engage people more empirically with all of the all of the senses and and so relational more relational worship tends to be that way, looking beyond just what's said and read as having content, but what content comes in many forms and other kinds of relationships. It's not just what's up front that counts; it's what happens among the body of Christ that counts as well. Obviously, you think that music serves as, I think the words you use, is a valance, something that has a combining power. So why do you think music does that? Well, uh, for example, um, I was with a congregation just recently, and uh, we were talking about the, uh, I'd been to several of their worship services. It was a lecture series. I was over five weeks, so I got to know them pretty well. And um, they had, you know, wonderful prayers for the people, prayers for the world, but they never sang anything that embodied that same content. The sermons were often 
directed toward the needs of the world, but they never sang anything. And so I said, we're going to sing some songs based on what I've heard you pray verbally, but we're going to put it in our own voices, our own hearts, our own minds. And some of those songs were hymns that were within the tradition that they even knew but had neglected, but some of them came from other places in the world. But when I framed it as a form of prayer, it it changed it. And I had several people say, you know, there's a difference between hearing a prayer given to me from up front and praying that prayer with my own body, my own lungs, my own voice uh, in community uh, with the congregation. It, 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 it takes it up a notch. Um, so uh, that's one aspect. I think another thing pedagogically is uh, we, we don't have many times outside of our worship these days, and we can just practice this kind of thing. So uh, I think there need to be occasions to you know, revive the old Fifth Sunday sing, but in case, instead of singing only things that are familiar that make us feel good, let's use it as an opportunity to also learn some new things that we can take with us into worship. Perhaps sometimes uh, uh, we need to let the, the established prelude go. I'm not against organs. I'm not against organists or, or that kind of thing. But maybe we could use that time to teach one new song as we gather to prepare for worship uh, and then later use that song in the context of the service. Uh, we have to be pretty astute. Visiting Sunday school classes I find to be very effective. And if I have a chance to acknowledge and appreciate what they love and say, now let me show you a couple of other things uh, that you might appreciate and put a face on that song. This is not just a commodity. It's not just a style that's different, but it's someone's witness to their faith. Uh, then it's hard for them to turn that down. When it's someone's witness, let's at least listen to it. This is the way they give us that witness. What are they trying to tell us? How can we identify with that witness? That's much different than talking about it as a song or as a, a strange kind of sound that's coming to them. So I use the terms of prayer and witness related to music as, as entrees for uh, uh, making this bridge to new materials. But we have to be kind of sneaky to find ways to practice this kind of thing. Uh, worship is a competence. It has a lot of competencies. You know that when you go to a a different tradition that you're not familiar with, and you see them doing all sorts of strange things that obviously they're very comfortable with, but you don't know what's going on. This is a kind of competence that we have to uh, develop and create space to learn uh, as well. Talk about the importance of the congregation as being the primary choir. Eric Ratley, a figure in the last century who was quite influential among especially mainline church musicians, uh, said that uh, the first and most important choir is the congregation. And the first role of the established choir is to help the congregation sing better and then sing on their behalf things they can't sing for themselves. That would be a Copernican revolution in most churches I've been in, <laughs> uh, where, uh, you know, the sometimes the choir views themselves as a music elite. Uh, when When they are they are actually enliveners of the congregation's song. And it's sure, I, I've had great choirs that could sing all sorts of wonderful music. But if we weren't singing well as a congregation, then that seemed to be kind of hollow. Uh, and so uh, we also practiced the hymns. We also made sure that 
we were enlivening him singing so that it was a it was two choirs there it was a dialogue uh back and forth with energy as opposed to just an audience uh so uh that's something that needs to be taken in consideration and i think this is another thing one can learn in many african-american churches in many latino contexts in africa different places where i've been uh sometimes last sunday's anthem becomes this sunday's uh, congregational piece or a part of it uh there seems to be an energy where the choir uh offers pieces that the congregation, at least in some form, can join in and pick up with for some of their music. Uh, and I, I think we could do a mixture of things, some things obviously that'll be appreciated uh, as choir pieces, but some things that, that bridge that gap uh, and, and bring us together and encourage us to sing. Uh, professor, we shared at uh, Southern Seminary, Don Husted. Uh, one of my most important mentors said, uh, the question for the Christian is, is not, do you have a voice? The question for the Christian is, do you have a song? And I think uh, we're, trying to, we're trying to share that song in some way. I notice often in churches that use choruses that even though the singing is intended to be congregational, because the worship team doesn't do the groundwork of introducing the song to the people, the people don't know the song. And they don't sing. It ends up being just the praise team that is the singers. But I also notice that in the church that I'm attending, many of the folks around me don't sing. I think it, it, there's no respecter of, of a style related to this issue. Uh, it can be, um, you know, uh, there, there are organists that just pull the music out of you somehow. And there are organists that over, overwhelm you and you give up. There are praise, praise teams that really uh, are becoming more increasingly conscious of wanting people to sing with them, and then there are praise teams that overwhelm you and you just give up. Um, so uh, actually, I find uh, in, in the congregations I've served for any length of time that uh, I, and I find where their heart song is, and I'll often do a stanza of it a cappella. Now, the first time you do it, it's kind of like diving off a diving board with a blindfold. You're not sure there's water down there. But people don't want, they abhor a vacuum of no sound. And about halfway through the stanza, they figure out that the organ's not going to support them or whatever. They're going to have to sing this. And then they find their voice. And then little by little, uh, you know, it got to be in my other churches that if I didn't do something a cappella with the congregation, sometime in the service, they'd start to complain. So um, uh, this can be, and then their singing was better when accompanied. Uh, the same thing's true of how I've developed my choirs. Uh, sometimes uh, I love to have a great accompanist. I love to have a good organist. I love to have a good praise team or guitar player or whatever. But sometimes just let the, the people sing for themselves uh, and they'll find their voice especially if, if you haven't killed the, the acoustics in the room so that it's totally dead. Um, that makes a big difference, too. Then you have to work to get people to sit together so they can hear each other. Uh, people don't want to sing out if they feel like they're singing a solo. So there's all sorts of other things that go into this. Um, but uh, I found that to be a very important uh, factor 
in congregational singing, and, and people can actually learn to take a pride in that kind of uh, experience, and it increases the singing. It seems like a paradox. If I drop out the instruments, uh, it's not going to be as good. But actually, people find their voice, and then it gets better overall. One example of that is the non-instrumental Christian denomination, where they sing in harmony, a cappella. Sure. Mennonites and Church of Christ and others. Mennonites don't grow up any more musical than the rest of us. They just have a tradition of where it's important they nourish it. As we begin to wrap things up, you emphasize that cross-cultural worship isn't just important for church, for being in a building, but it's important for going beyond the building. It can be a dimension of activism. You've told me of your experience while at Wake Forest about the encounter with the Ku Klux Klan. And you also told me about the Homeless Choir, where you are in Richmond, Virginia. So tell us those stories. Well, uh, back in 86, I believe that was the time in May, uh, that was an event that I hadn't expected would be uh, life-changing, but that's the way the Spirit works. So... Uh, a KKK rally was scheduled for the little town of Wake Forest and was given permission to do a march down Main Street. My colleagues uh, at Southeastern Seminary, we thought we should offer some kind of protest. So we didn't want to give them any encouragement. So some people did some signs and things like that and some students were involved, but we basically stood on the sidelines in silence as this macabre little procession with a Jeep and a little honor guard, so to speak, uh, in, in army fatigues, um, with, with rifles. I didn't know whether there was anything in them or not, but, uh, uh, a drum cadence, uh, came down. And, uh, so we watched in silence, kind of like deer in headlights. And then, uh, some young people in the town from the, you know, the college area started to kind of, uh, go out and encourage them. And uh, this offended some of the seminary students uh, and the rest of us, too. Uh, but some of the seminary students started to tug at them and pull them back, or other people in the town. And this started to cause a, a potential uh, outbreak uh, uh, of a belligerent nature, which, of course, the press would love, and uh, which they would love, the KKK would look like. Uh, so... Uh, Again, I, I had never been to one of these things. I was just a little too young to, to be, uh, while conscious, not really aware that much of, of the mechanics uh, of what happened in the, the King and the Civil Rights uh, marches and things of that nature. There was a pastor in town uh, who uh, was experienced with that, and I had met him on a couple of occasions, and he came up behind me, and he said, Mike, help me sing. And I, I did, it didn't just didn't register. And then my voice wouldn't work. I mean, it just wouldn't work for a minute. And he had to unlock it with his voice uh, that was kind of, a, you know, wobbly but beautiful in, in a way. And I was simply amazed. Now, this has been some time, but if my memory serves me well, uh, how quickly people wanted to do something. They wanted some way to respond, but they didn't know. And how quickly the song spread, We Shall Overcome. Uh, and uh, as I recall the event, uh, uh, the slow procession, we, we found our voice and we started to move out into the street behind them. And rather than watching just walk through the middle of us, we, we started to move behind them and sing them out of town. 
uh, in a totally unrehearsed uh, experience. And uh, one of the students in talking about later said they felt like we had performed a musical exorcism on the town. Uh, well, that's that's been in my consciousness for a long time. But recently, I've been involved in my doctoral program where the one of the major purposes of it is to reinvent the profession of church music. And if it's going to survive, uh, given the economic context, the shrinkage of many mainline churches, I think it's going to have to be more uh, conscious of, of getting out into the community uh, itself and making our buildings more porous. I was trained uh, under the kind of uh, notion at, at Southern Seminary, which was quite common at the time, that I would establish a program in a building and everyone would come to me. Uh, and indeed, that worked in or appeared to work in many places. And uh, I would have my age range of choirs, my handbell groups, uh, I had orchestra, you know, you name it, and they would all come to us, but they're not coming to us like they used to. Uh, so uh, working with younger people, uh, they understand almost instinctively that you have to go out, that you may need a different skill set than, than what we develop in seminaries. So what is that skill set? Well, learning how to sing and lead people singing with no uh, instruments on the street is a very different thing than having an organized choir or uh, an organist or a praise team backing you up within the safety of a sanctuary. Uh, people don't want to carry books. They have to learn how to lead things paperless. Uh, they have to develop uh, portable instrument skills, whether it's a percussion instrument or a guitar or whatever. And so um, making the building more porous, uh, the congregation I've gotten involved with in Raleigh then has a it's called the RVA, Richmond, Virginia Street uh, Street Choir, Street Singers. And uh, largely vulnerable populations, people who, who uh, either are homeless or close to it or live on the edge, uh, they first are attracted by the meal that's offered every week uh, on Monday, uh, but also by the free bus passes. And, and then they come, and they come to the choir, and they get a bus pass. But now they'll tell you what, well, the bus pass is great, but I just want to be here. And uh, so being among these people uh, has been a, uh, and helping them find their voice literally and figuratively. Places, these are people who maybe never had other folks that listened to them. And so uh, it's a different kind of rehearsal. It's a rehearsal where uh, every person is heard. Uh, we uh, the, And the better they're heard, just individually, the more we can start to make some good music. Uh, the choir has been an entree for also meeting once a month with the choir rehearsal in a, in a, uh, a local health uh, place where they can uh, fig figure out how to meet their health needs and, and how to uh, be cared for in that way. Uh, their self-esteem, they just got back from a trip uh, to the Kennedy Center for a new program they have called Reach, and they were a featured choir for that. Many of them had never, the idea of getting on a bus and going from Raleigh to D.C., a really nice bus, as they said, with a bathroom and everything, uh, uh, and, and, and singing for this group tremendously raised their esteem. And so uh, I sing in my regular church choir, which I love, but I, I, uh, I wouldn't try anything for singing uh, with this group. And uh, it's put me in contact with a lot of people that I wouldn't normally meet through music and developing relationships. Uh, there's all sorts of ways to find out what the needs of community are and match them with 
the gifts you have in your congregation, and then uh, go outside the building to deliver those. Uh, I think, uh, again, the, the purpose is just Matthew 25. It's not any hardcore evangelism or whatever, but being human and being in, in, in relationship with each other. And uh, the, rest, the rest seems to come fairly naturally. Well, I am deeply grateful to you for being with us today. For my listeners, I encourage you to get the book, One Bread, One Body, where you will find very extensive and practical ideas for creating experiences of cross-cultural worship. And hopefully, we will get to have more conversations with Michael in which we will talk more specifically about world church music. You've been listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. My next episode will be just me. I thought I would give you some background on why I am doing the podcast and some insight into the ideas and folks that have influenced me. I want to give a thank you to Hope Publishing Company for letting me use a portion of the anthem, A Place at the Table. The words are by Shirley Murray, and the music is by Mary McDonald. I do hope that you'll tune in for my next episode. This show has as its purpose enabling you to hear the voices of the Christian left and about the issues and concerns that are of interest to the Christian left. Practicing Gospel Inc. is a nonprofit organization. If you like what you have heard, go to my website at practicing-gospel at B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot net to subscribe and hopefully donate. Your participation will help me to continue this effort. Thank you for listening and for your support. Blessings. Let God